Hello and welcome to What Moves Us, the podcast where we ask what moves us or more accurately what's going to move us in future. With the Rail Innovation Group's Johanna Randall and Liam Henderson we look at debates, themes and decisions of the minutes that will impact on the way we get about in the future. Hello and welcome to 2024. Johanna and Deb both on the line with me. Say hello. Hello and happy new year. Hello and yes happy new year. Happy um, probably election year. So that's probably what we're going to be talking a bit about, isn't it? When we talk about what Rail Innovation Group is going to be doing this year. I think it is. Well, we started the new year quite well because I had an interview with uh, Judith Huff from Innovate UK Edge, who is very keen to hear from startups. So we will do that interview uh, just after we have a conversation. Um, but that'll be a great start to 2024. And then we have lots of pods queued up to go out. But Yes, can't get away from the year it is. I know tomorrow we're due to go to a parliamentary reception, which starts the year of politics as we mean to go on. So what do you think the topic of conversation will be tomorrow at the parliamentary reception? Well, I think it's quite <laughs> likely to be, given that there's something I think dropped into the uh, grid um, re uh, just over the weekend that's kind of emerged that it possibly the safeguarding issue around um, HS2 land which looks like it may be coming through as a kind of um, lifting the safeguarding towards the end of the month which is obviously of great concern not just for anyone working on HS2 but obviously looking at the wider rail network because there is a lot of concern that if you know, if some of the land that was bought around crew for uh, HS2 phase two is no longer kind of available um, and is kind of sold on, then it does stymie what is possible for the network sort of north of uh, Birmingham into Manchester and, uh, uh, you know, whatever your view of kind of, uh, the, the you know, the, the, the whether, you know, phase two, a and B uh, should or shouldn't be brought back onto the table at a, pre at a later day, you know, regardless of that, whatever, you know, Andy Burnham and Andy Street are looking at other alternative propositions for that. But I think there's lots of um, sort of intelligence in the rail sector that's sort of suggesting that that land is quite crucial to anything that happens um, in, in, the, in the kind of network, whether it's network north or whether it's another version of that post um, general election. So, yeah, I think that will be, probably be something that, because RIA have been quite robust about, uh, you know, about the fact that, that land should be safeguarded for the time being, you know, and that there should be some kind of pause on all of that until a more um, network approach is taken to the rail. So when you say they've put something on the grid, is that going to be an announcement about what they're going to do in terms of legislation to dispose of the land because there was a question wasn't there about whether because phase two is has already gone through as an act of parliament whether there'd be a need uh, a need for an act of parliament to remove that safeguarding yes I, I as i understand it and i mean there's lots of talk about this from all sorts of different you know parts of the of the industry and some of it's kind of you know just kind of talk there's nothing the government is saying very little um, but my understanding is that they are talk the government is talking about lifting the safeguarding, but not necessarily lifting uh, take because to take the act out of you know it has to go back through Parliament to do that, and it's unlikely that that would happen before a general election anyway, just because of the timing you know timings of parliamentary time and all of that kind of thing. So 
there's lots of questions around it. It's 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 a it's a mess to be honest, because there's lots right. of you know there is some thought that obviously even if the safeguarding is lifted, that actually who would buy land that is still blighted by the act? But you know yeah. that's yeah. that's that's not really a and kind of particular that is not that doesn't give you great comfort, you know, to to sort of you know if you think that the whole of the rest of the network north of Birmingham is re- resting on that land being available, then it's not. You know, it doesn't feel very strategic to think about it like that. You and know, I, let, let's hope for the best. <laughs> and I think a lot of things are are a mess, aren't they? And I think it's interesting that we focus geo straight away on HS2 and the land. But actually, yeah. as we've often said before in this podcast, you know, there's nothing strategic about it because we have no national transport strategy. Exactly. And I, I do think that it's really kind of brought that to the fore that, you know, that actually, you know, HS2 to some extent is almost like a tainted brand now because of the politics around it and because of just generally over the course of the whole of, you know, the decade, more than a decade that it's been kind of, um, you know, on the table as a kind of infrastructure project in this country because it's never been really it's although it's had cross-party support it's had loads of you know the media have been extremely anti you know the general public generally seem to be quite sort of either agnostic or anti there's not that many people other than the people that are quite connected to rail that actually can see that the project can perceive it as a as a good thing and for me it feels like this whole pause if you wanted to look at it from a positive perspective is about how we talk about the rail network because really hs2 should only ever have been considered and talked about and promoted yeah as part of the wider network you know it's not a standalone it seems like it's a standalone project but actually it isn't it was always going to keep connecting to the rest of the network and it should have always been considered as part and of the also as, as everybody said you're freeing up capacity on the west coast exactly. for more local services more freight which is all contributing to our um, carbon reduction and meeting our climate change goals and of it's, course that's been back in the news again as well with all the disruption over the last couple of months with all the rain and that we've been experiencing uh, exactly yeah. exactly climate resilient infrastructure all of that so it's like whether we whether anyone's going you know whether the, the whoever is next in government will be think obviously you know thinking about this and might want to mention that there's obviously the labor are doing this um review that's headed up by Jürgen Meyer and but it's, it's a really quick review because actually I think they've just put out the questions for that for that consultation and it's um, the deadline for submissions is Friday week, 26th of January. So um, encouraging the Labour are looking at the at, at HS2 in the context of at the what you know the wider uh, rail network and what is what is required in terms of capacity, you know, sustainable, you know, how it connects to the wider sort of sustainable transport, urban mobility sort of um, piece. But uh, it's a it's a pretty quick review, um, and also probably worth saying that Rachel Reeves is also doing a, a actually set up a um, I think it's called the British Infrastructure Council, which again is something that with my other hat on with the High Speed Rail Group will be looking at how we can engage with that because obviously, you know, as we all know the 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 decisions being made on, that were made by this government on HS2 were very much treasury decisions so i think it's really important that as we engage as an industry with whoever is going to be next in government might that's potentially looking like it will be labor just because if you look at the polls that's what the polls are suggesting but that does mean that the industry needs to engage with rachel reeves and her treasury team and not just with the rail team 
Um, so that's on a, uh, I guess, a macro scale. Mm -hmm. um, I was curious in terms of what I, I what, I, how I thought the conversation was going was also due to a continued uncertainty. And my hope for this year would be that there was more, because I obviously talk to our members a lot who really, <laughs> I feel for them a lot because the amount of uncertainty and no decision-making and no line of even working out who makes decisions and who authorizes things. I hope, I would hope that that would get cleared up, but I do fear that now we're talking about an election in November, um, that it's going to be another wasted, almost a wasted year when lots of the bright ideas and great companies just either pause their project and rail or just look elsewhere to start their businesses. Because I do, I did sense that last year, a lot of people just running out of steam and particularly their investors don't have the patience to wait for the length of time things are taking well, a rail. I think there is an issue with supply pipeline just in general though, isn't there? Because I mean, we work in a risk averse industry anyway. And given that there's no certainty of what's happening with rail, because I mean, like GBRTT seem to be putting out lots of things about what they're up to, but is there any certainty on what is going to happen with that legislation, if anything, this year? Yeah, or what's uh, going to happen between DFT? Is there going to be are they going to be starting fran the franchising? Because as as Debs has already you know just said you know about um sort of like you know it was a cost decision on HS two. Well, how long can we continue in franchising or train operations world of where the DFT are telling train operators they have to cut costs because that's what they're being measured on, but Treasury are taking all the revenue. You know, how long can we carry on? You know, because in all that time, the the industry is retracting. And so nobody wants to spend any money. And obviously we know sort of like there's no, we've got threats of rolling stock companies saying that they've got to start, you know, reducing, you know, factories. And that that's not good for UK PLC. No, do you yeah. get the sense, do you get the sense that everyone, everyone in the industry and generally probably the civil service just keeping the plate spinning just long enough? hoping for a, a radical change to happen. It, it does feel like that, and it does feel like... I mean, a radical change is needed, let's be honest. A radical change is desperately needed, and I think that that's, that's, that's what the frustration that everyone feels, is that there's, you know, we're just waiting for a general election. Um, that's how it feels across many sectors, not just transport, um, because, um, yeah... It, 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 and it, and that's mostly particularly for rail, I think, because it was extremely frustrating to see a decision made on, I don't want to keep going on about HS2, but that's kind of my point of reference most of the time. Um, you know, that's, it wasn't a strategic decision for, the, you know, it was, so it feels like, you know, slightly purposeless to to make these strategic kind of cases back to, back to, um government because so actually, it, it, you know it feels like you know because really if you think about it on hs2 you could just go back to the you could go back to the higgins report of 20 whenever that was 2011 i can't remember that said that, that went over that used all the atkins data and what have you to go over why there is a case for building new route new line as part of the offer to up the capacity for the west coast mainline because there was no options to kind of put you know increase capacity with the existing network 
and that's already been done. So for the government to turn around and say, oh, look, you know, we don't actually need that second bit of the, of, of the of HS2 because we can just sort of patch it together with what we've got. Well, you know, there was a, there's a, there's we've very, already done that. We've already done that. Right. That evidence is already there. It was there like 10 years ago. That's the whole point. If, if we could have done that, nobody could, would have been able to make the case for HS2. So it feels frustrating because obviously you're dealing with, you know, these are just pure, I mean, you can't even say they're cost decisions, on, on, on certainly on HS2. I'm not saying on the rest of the railway, as you make that very good point, Johanna, but certainly on HS2, it's a political decision, pure and simple. And if you look at any other infrastructure evidence from right across Europe, where, of course, they are building, you know, heavily investing in high, in high-speed rail. I was reading a really interesting report that come, came from Spain um, um last week which we can i can send you Liam. we can put it out to members that's quite with you know uk sort of not faring particularly well in in that report but just you know showing how important it is to just have you know political consensus you know beat to bit to, to deliver efficiently you have to kind of keep the keep your foot on the gas not keep changing the scope of what you're doing and all of all, all of the things that basically mm, the, the, all the things we know all of the things that we <laughs> all of the things that we have done to push up the cost of our our only high-speed rail development that we're doing at the moment so that's we've very very effectively done everything that you're not supposed to do um and then we've said oh my goodness look how much the costs have gone up let's not do it at all then <laughs> so um you know just kind of i know that i don't mean to sound sort of flippant but that is if essentially what we've done so yeah, because it's... every time you add you do a review it adds cost to it doesn't it absolutely you, know, you change scope of that you know because i think you know just because you know, I'm familiar with sort of like Euston. They've probably had three or four designs of Euston because mm. in, in order to try and save cost. But every time they redesign it, it's costing the project money rather than just getting on and doing it. Because mm. if we'd have stuck to the original timescales, we'd be 18 months away from opening it. Yeah, I know. And I'm... we'd be starting to make money from it. Yeah. And going back to Liam's point, that's obviously, you know, for the – for the smaller supply chain, um, that's, you know, what people want is confidence in the pipeline of work. And that's what we are not giving anyone at the moment in in uh, in rail and uh, infrastructure. Well, well, how many reports have there been into being in boom and bust and how much extra that costs mm. every time you cancel a project and then ramp it back up again? Can't Because you're demobilising, mobilising, you know, nobody has security. You know, every time, you know, that adds risk to a project because people don't have certainty that a project's going to be delivered. It's all adding to cost. Yeah. So I guess right. if, we're, if we're going back to, sorry, Liam, I'm trying to draw it back to kind of... Um, us uh, what our program might look like for this year i think a lot of that is going to be kind of trying to input into some of the reviews that are happening and um even if that's just means sort of sharing sharing links and um things like that to our members so that they can kind of respond where appropriate and where they're able and where we can support that we we probably will um but yeah yes so i know we have very limited time uh just one thing then we're in january 2020 Four, if we do this podcast in December 2024, please tell me one positive you'd like to have. A new government, please. I would like to see, regardless of government, a recommitment to public transport and a move away from sort of like, you know, thinking that car and aviation is the future for British transport policy. 
Agreed. Right. And I guess mine is I have probably more limited, uh, what's the word, aspirations, and it would be to go back to a situation where we started to go in the right direction of local transport, active transport, feeding into public transport, and somewhere along the line over the last two years, we've gone back to a 1950s car-based transport policy. But, I don't know what happened with that. I will no. say, though, and one of the things that we should do a lot of over this year is how things are working differently in Wales and Scotland. Because particularly in Scotland, because Scotland does have a, a Scottish transport policy where they have a hierarchy of transport, mm. which, first of all, promotes active transport, um, then goes on to um, public transport, buses, rail and that with car, while, whilst a lot of people in Scotland are reliant on cars just purely because of geography and and the rest of it they are trying to move it in the right direction mm. so i think you know and and of course wales also said that they weren't going to build any new roads so there are good things happening and i think we should be looking at more at what some of the nations are doing over what necessarily westminster are doing johanna it sounds a bit like as our regional rep you've just taken another action <laughs> right we must move on now so uh just you unfortunately weren't able to join me a couple of weeks ago but i sat down with judith huff who is an innovation growth specialist at innovate uk edge i began by asking her to introduce herself i'm jude huff and i'm an innovation growth specialist working in the west midlands for innovate uk so i'm a former entrepreneur and as with a lot of entrepreneurs i'm now helping other people with entrepreneur and innovation and um specifically in the west midlands because it's a particularly overlooked part of the country and um obviously there's an awful lot goes on in london there's pockets around the uk but we're very targeted and my particular interest is in the U is in the west midlands Right. A couple of questions that came up from that is, one, what you were you an entrepreneur in? <laughs> Why is the West Midlands overlooked? So I am an entrepreneur because I created a product, Necessity Was the Mother of Invention, which is probably very pertinent to the industry we're talking about today. And But my necessity was the potty training of my son because well. I was basically pretty awful at it. And um, he had some other stuff going on as well. And I invented a potty training product. And it is a case of, it was so obvious and no one else had thought of it. And I basically created a pad that might be used for something else for other people in other walks of life. But yeah. I applied it to children. No one had patented that concept for children. And my business partner and I did that. And then we took it to all the supermarkets in the UK, got into Sainsbury's and Morrison's, Tesco's, you name it, took it out to America. And it was almost brilliant, but um, unfortunately we were slightly, well, we flew too close to the sun, I think. A bit of Icarus went on and we unfortunately didn't make it all the way to the yacht in the Bahamas, which might have been the goal, but we did pretty good. We got it a long way. Now I look, work with innovators, I realise how far we got our products and how well we did actually, even if we ended up having to close the business ultimately. Right, but that gives great insight into your work, I guess. Um, and yes. also you can sort of share the emotional challenge that some of the startups probably have. A lot. I have had a few sessions with people crying on me recently, yes. <laughs> We're a safe space for that here at Innovate UK. Right. Good to know. Uh, well, good to know, yes. 
I, I, I am, I have had conversations with other people. I do feel very, very, uh, what's the word? What's the word? Supportive of people. You. Yeah, I mean, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you are inherently a risk taker and you're out there for um, the thrill of the risk, for the possibilities that no one else sees, for being prepared to go out on a limb, um, at sometimes at all costs. And um, that is what entrepreneurs do. And that is why they're very exciting to work with, because they are looking beyond... I mean, when I was doing my product, I was in between the nappy industry and the sanitary towel industry and the stuff that lies in between the great big um, areas that are well known is where all the innovation and exciting stuff happens. When we're taking bits that work across sectors, it just gets very exciting. And that's what I love. Cool. That is great. Can we just pick up on the West Midlands bit? Yes, you can. So every time I look at a map, it doesn't matter where I'm looking at it, um, not necessarily within Invert UK because we're very conscious of it and we're working hard. But there's always a great big hole around the West Midlands. And I just think we're sort of, that bit that HS2 was just going to go straight past when we <laughs> were going to be driven over to the north and uh, with a stop on the way. But yeah, there's an awful lot going on stops. around here. Pardon? You've got two, two stops. stops. Nave, <laughs> the end of it. <laughs> You're the destiny. And, um, yeah, but with this, we're a very wide area. So the patch that I work on goes all the way across to the east of Midlands, to the East Midlands, all the way to the borders of Wales. It reaches quite far up to the edges of Staffordshire, down to the edges of Gloucester. It's a huge patch of the country. It's not just um, Birmingham and yeah. around there. You know, lots of stuff going on in the shires. And I think it's quite a geographically broad area. So it, it, people miss great big chunks of the West Midlands. And that's what we're here to try and find. Okay, so tell us a bit more about what Innovate UK Edge is and what it does, and actually what so, you uh, Oh, it's what I do, yeah. So Edge is on the edge, if you like, of um, Innovate UK, and we're there to work directly with SMEs. So I'm like a, an advisor, a coach, an expert in innovation, and I work one-to-one -one with clients to help them a, access all the stuff that Innovate UK have got to offer, but B, to work with them on a one-to-one -one level, coaching them, um, using my experience, working with my colleagues and all their experience to sort of really help as a business advisor, coach, consultant, an organisation get their innovation over the line. You know, I help people write grants. I help them identify opportunities within Innovate UK that they could work with. I hook them up to research organisations where they can start projects that can help them with their innovation. Um, and sometimes we're a shoulder to cry on. Sometimes we're looking at sales and marketing. It's everything in the business um, we are interested and I'm interested in helping you with in order to get your innovation to market. And internationalisation is massive. We have a big international programme to help you get abroad with your innovation as well. Right. So is that open to everybody or do you have to have come through some channel? or? Well, there's no... Uh, there's no sort of pass or fail. It's not like that. But we do have some criteria that we work with. And we're quite loose with the criteria. So you sort of have to speak to us. So it's not, um, I'm very conscious that people rule themselves out of coming forward for help, um, thinking they're not innovative enough. And often companies are innovating way more than they realise. And they don't realise that innovation isn't always just about a patent. It can be a, a process, a new way of going about things, linking together different things that no one's thought about before. And we can help with the pathway to IP. So what we're looking for is innovation is number one. 
Um, we look for high growth. So we're not working with like brand new startups. You may have a startup idea within an existing organization, but you tend to have got off the ground with your idea a little bit, maybe had a little bit of funding from yourself or started the business going forward and you're looking to really scale with help with the innovation. So we look for about 20% growth year on year when your innovation's um, completed. And we're also looking for ambition to internationalize. That's really important that we help UK PLC um, export its products right. and its innovations. And then do you focus on any particular innovations or like do you have themes or challenges or anything? There are there are themes. And there's quite a big theme around mobility, but really we'll talk to anyone because innovation can come in any guys. We work across so many sectors. You know, I've got agriculture people, I've got filmmakers, I've got cybersecurity people, I've got um, transports, you name it, in my portfolio. I've got about 20 odd clients at the minute and they're all doing something completely different and they are across every sector you can think of so we're you know we're generalists we're specialists um there's always somebody in the organization who's worked in or around the sphere that you're working in so if i don't know i can go and ask a colleague and we work really collaboratively like that to make sure that we're always getting expertise to the business that we're working with right right okay and how sorry well how does an engagement start with you do where do they write to? The way they write to, well, we have a National Inquiry Gateway, which people are welcome to go and find. Um, or you can contact me direct if you're in the West Midlands. I would love to speak to you. Um, and that's sort of the part we struggle with. It's like, how do people know about us? And then you just have to reach out and we'll have a chat. And the first thing is a chat, really, to figure out whether you have got an innovation and whether we can help. If we can't help, we just don't go no goodbye we sometimes nurture clients until we can help we might signpost them to other local organizations that might be more appropriate in the short term for support um, we tend to keep people on our radar once they've spoken to us they you know we're always open for a chat and um, it might be six months 12 months we might help signpost you and say why don't you try xyz and then talk to us in three to six months time and we might be able to put you into the program right It's interesting to hear that you saying how much the organization does. I was just wondering, I've been in the sector now for quite a long time. And when we've been having conversations over the last few months in preparation for this podcast, I've been learning more and more about yeah. organizations. So is it that it's been sort of flying under the radar or have you been focused elsewhere? How is it that we haven't heard so much about you before? We've been developing as an organization really since COVID. So I had help from former iterations of Innovate UK. They weren't called Innovate UK. Back 10, 15 years ago, I got some help from um, a proof of concept grant. So things have existed, but not necessarily in this form. And I think we've sort of, since COVID, really been trying to go out with the outreach of Edge to reach businesses. So there's been forms of funding centralised. I know personally, I can't speak on behalf of the whole of the organisation, but within the West Midlands, we have been quite hard to identify and we're doing an awful lot of work now to try and reach out towards people because um and we're doing a lot of work on linkedin actually to find organizations just to try and find people who don't know we exist so i think you will you will see more from us because we're just getting better at trying to find people it's just a process that's all it is you know we're a lot, quite a large organization we're all across the country it's quite a lot of parts to coordinate i think i probably it like that and we're sort of trying to penetrate areas as we grow and i think 
you know, the appetite for innovation is just growing. I think we're seeing um, as a country how much innovation is going to really drive our um, drive us forward yeah. and all the opportunities there are and all the stuff with AI, which is just mind boggling right now and super exciting. Excellent. Come on to that, probably. Uh, yeah. So when you do engage with someone does start an engagement with you, how long does how long is their engagement with you? How long do they spend talking to you? So we don't have a beginning or an end. We don't say it's three months and best. It used to be a set amount of time, but now it's not. What we recognise is that organisations will come on board. They'll probably have a really productive three to six months. We'll do put some work together. They might want to go away then and deliver that work. And we might put them on a pause and then they'll come back to us. So the, the door's always open to then come back and reignite the relationship. So we're much more understanding of how organisations need to engage and disengage as they go forward because it is time consuming. It's a commitment when you come into Edge as a business. You know, you have got to give up time to talk to me, to go and put actions in place, to talk to the people I connect you with. And so that's appropriate for some businesses and then they need to go away and actually deliver and, and get on with their innovation. So um, I'd probably say 12 months is probably a good timeline to be working quite intensively, six to 12 months, and then there might be a pause. Okay, so you yourself, you're an innovation growth specialist. Can you tell us kind of that does what's the day in the life of an innovation growth specialist so i spend most of my day um, meeting clients a lot of them virtually i do go out we're trying to see more face to face but actually so many businesses have got rid of offices that there aren't any offices to meet people in. so we're still doing an awful lot virtually but that that's good for the busy i mean i think that's a bonus for an sme business who's busy to be able to get on and have a growth call with me without having to take half a day out of their life i think that's a win Anyway, so I will have um, three or four meetings with clients a day. I then have to do a bit of paperwork around the edges to make sure that things are documented. Um, I set time aside in the week to follow up on action. So where I'm connecting people, say with the Defence Accelerator, we're going to reach out and make those connections. Or I might be working on a grant application for someone and helping them complete that. Um, and it's really varied. I, I had the great pleasure of working with one of my clients and going and holding some human flesh the other week, which I thought was a great thrill. But um, no. so it's really varied. Interesting. <laughs> okay. I know that's my that's my Halloween story, but I, I right. it was a great thrill. <laughs> Talking of horrors, how much reporting do you have to do? It's not too bad. I'm getting it. I've got it under control because I'm a nightmare when it comes to paperwork. But um, after every meeting, I do about an hour's worth of follow up and um, reporting. And that's really to make sure if I get run over by a bus, someone else knows what's been going on. And, um, you know, and it's just really good order. You know, the clients, we talk about a lot of stuff in our sessions. It's really important the client has clear actions so they understand what what they can go and do afterwards with what we've been discussing and all the contacts that they need to make as a follow-up. Right. So have there been any sort of noteworthy either wins or lessons learnt? Or... I think the big lesson is everybody who's an SME would like to get their hands on money and everybody who's an SME, in fact, every business I've ever made completely underestimates the challenge and the time needed and how much work needs to go in. So if we're doing a grant application, the success rate's often very low. It can be like four or 5%, sometimes lower. Um, the, a grant application needs as much work as if there was a pitch deck going to an investor. You know, you can't apply for a grant without really understanding your business, your numbers, your project plan. We need Gantt charts, you name it, all there. And I think that's often a shock. And 
we often have to go through two or three grants before we get a success because you apply for a grant with Innovate UK, we get some feedback, then we go for the next one and improve um, where the answers weren't good enough. And I think it's a real shock to founders and owners how much time has to be spent in raising funds. And, and SMEs underestimate how much they need the money in order to buy the capacity to innovate because often if they're already a business, they're using all their resources keeping their business afloat and to take to take people out of the business to innovate it can be a challenge so it's a chicken and egg you need the money to create the capacity to get on with your innovation but you need the time and energy to put into to getting the money no one's just going to give you money because you say it's a great idea you've got to go and prove it there's a lot of work in fundraising just thinking of that though and particularly in terms of public grants is do you think that by making public grants so hard to get we'll almost stifle innovation because so a lot of it gets lost by the wayside. I would love to give everyone who came with a good idea money, but the truth of it is it does sort out the, um, the wood from the chaff because you have to be committed for the long haul when you're innovating. We said at the beginning about the tears that are shed, you know, it's never easy. And I think if you can see through a grant application process and get the answers right and win it, then you've shown true determination. So there is something in the process that works, although it is always frustrating because there are many, many people who deserve grants that don't win them. So it's a bit right. chicken and egg in that sense as well. Okay. And have you come across any... Have you come across any very horror stories of people that weren't prepared? Um, you don't have to name names, but are there any like- not, <laughs> horror, not horror stories, but I think uh, it is all, you have to know your numbers and your market. You cannot skimp on the pate. So, you know, I have had someone recently get a low score and a grant and I was really disappointed for them because they've got an absolutely brilliant concept. But the truth of it is, it was a fast application done at the last minute. And, um, you know, the work, it just takes a lot of work to pull the numbers together. And to do the, there's a lot of grants um, require additional appendices. And I'm, by that we mean Gantt charts, you know, full project plans, um, things like that just take time. You know, they can't be, they can't be rushed and they have to make sense in the concept as a grant as well. We have grant specialists in house. I can help with grants, but I'm not the grant specialist. I have a grant specialist that I'm able to access who works in our team and we bring them in as well. So we offer a lot of support. So we're really valuable. And a lot of people who apply for Innovate UK grants and they give, get given to me as part of the grant process to help them with the delivery of the grant as well. So you, we sort of come at it from both sides. Right. Okay. So Generally, what advice would you give, apart from know your numbers, to anyone considering engaging with in Edge? I would say don't think about it. Just have a chat because you will get a long way with the chat. You'll learn a lot just from a conversation with us. And um, that doesn't mean that we know everything. That doesn't mean that at all. It just means we just talk to a lot of people. So we have a lot of insights and we're all pretty much, all the IGSs that I know have pretty much all had their own businesses and have worn a bit of the t-shirts and so we are worth talking to and I think don't put it off and don't think oh I'm not innovative enough or my idea is not far enough ahead or just get on the phone and have a chat you know we love to have a talk with innovative businesses and we love to help and that's what we're here for we're here I'm here so that other SMEs don't fail where I did and they get to the other side and are successful that's the whole point right it's a great message then um last question which is a general question Feel free to answer however you want to ask. 
<laughs> What's your advice for anyone new to the wider industry? Now, I was laughing at this because I wasn't sure whether you meant the rail industry, which I'm very ill-equipped to answer, or the innovation industry, but I think I'm going to answer it as an entrepreneur. And I say the hardest thing you'll ever do, other than raising kids and pets, <laughs> is be an entrepreneur. But the most rewarding thing you'll ever do is be an entrepreneur because it is like giving birth to your baby and particularly if you're innovating something. And um, I, I, I just, it's just so rewarding and it is so much fun and it is hard work and discipline is required. Um, but, you know, go and listen to Diary of a CEO and get inspired. And if you can use AI anywhere, use it. It's coming out of the woodwork in everything we're doing now. So I think that's a great opportunity for, um, particularly in this sector where sort of the key themes are decarbonisation and um, improving transport for the user. And there's so much to be done with digital in both of those areas. So I think there's right. lots to be innovating at. I was going to end there, but you've actually just reminded me of the last question that I wanted to ask, which was, do you think we risk <laughs> AI just becoming a buzzword in everyone's business plans? I think we did. And I think we're moving past it now into the interesting stuff. And, you know, we work with catapults. And one of the really interesting catapults I've started working with is the digital catapult. And for example, they're working with one of my clients delivering 15 days worth of AI expertise into their business to go across a business that has no AI in to look at how AI can help. And it is mind blowing. So I think um, we don't know what we don't know. And there are experts out there who can help and I can get you in touch with them. Brilliant. Judith, thank you very much for your time. It's an absolute um, pleasure. But for 2024. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Moves Us. We hope we moved you. For more episodes, you'll definitely want to subscribe to our channel. Um, until next time.